Good morning, uh, friends and family. It's good to see you today. My name is Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FBC Pasadena. I want to say a couple things about what's happening up here as we get started. Um, in a little bit, Pastor Collins is going to bring down a few more supplies. Uh, but we have been doing this drive with, um, in partnership with Friends Indeed, which is a ministry up in northwest Pasadena. And uh, they ask each year if uh, communities around the area can help out with some backpacks and school supplies for kids who need them. Uh, and so this is sort of our offering toward that direction. Uh, toward the end of the service today, we're going to do a blessing over these items together. So, uh, so that's why it's here at the front, so that we can bless it. This is our sort of altar space, and this is our offering that we are able to share. Uh, all right, this morning we have a lot of work to do around the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to ask if you would uh, join me in a moment of prayer as we get started and as we situate ourselves. Uh, so pray with me, please. God, open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears. Uh, We are listening. Amen. I don't like malls, even a little bit. You might love malls, because right now, what you're thinking is malls are air-conditioned, and that sounds like a great thing. But malls make me super-duper anxious. Does anybody else share this anxiety at the mall? Um, and I like that you're raising your hands with your fan. It makes it feel like double important that you, so they just, they make me anxious because I feel their pull. There are certain spaces that have a magnetism to them and you know that they're trying to get you to do a thing. Uh, and so the mall has a pull and I don't where to focus my eyes. I don't know what store I'm supposed to go in. And you can ask my wife, like if I can help it, I stay away. We used to live next to a mall, though, and at Christmas time we could walk there, and that was fun because we didn't have to shop, so we could walk, miss the traffic, and just watch everybody scurry. That was less anxious for me. But I want to ask you to consider this a different kind of space this morning. Uh, We're going to, if you've got a Bible, you could open to it. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. This is toward the end of chapter 6, really, verses 19 to about 24. And it's about money and our stuff. This place feels to me like a temple. It's a place where our desires are formed, where there are sets of rituals that we enact, and where we pay tithes and offerings, right? It, it, it is a temple. I want to tell you a story about this religion that I've discovered. Discovered I was a part of and didn't quite know that I was a part of it. Uh, So does anyone know what this is? Say it louder. A Burberry bag. How did you know that? Because there's no way you can read that label at the top. You knew it from the plaid pattern. It's amazing, right? It's sort of like when you see a building and you notice that there's one of these, you can kind of assume it's it's a church. Right? So we have our sacred symbols. Yes, this is a Burberry bag. And uh, are you about to play a song, Ted? No, I broke a string. You broke a string. <laughs> you are, you're more than welcome to change it. But I thought you were going to give me background music while I was preaching. No, but, but I'm like the guitar. I was broken. So I, you know, and you're about, to, you're about to heal the guitar. Bring it to salvation. Uh, here's what Burberry did. This year they burned about $35 million of backstock product. That's crazy. That's a lot of money. The reason that they burned all of that product up 
is apparently a thing that lots of retail places do. They're protecting their brand. It's an exclusive brand and you cannot sell Burberry on the cheap. You gotta make sure that stuff doesn't end up in a thrift store because if it ends up in a thrift store, the wrong people could get it and then it would really dilute the brand and they can't sell the product for as much. This is like a true thing. And so they sort of set fire. Now they're reasoning for it and I don't shop at Burberry so I'm fine to lay waste to Burberry and I'm sorry if you do, like I just don't have a vested interest in Burberry's future. Um, and it's okay if you do, but I don't. Uh, they said like we are the way that they burned the product up they harness the energy from the burning and then they're going to use it for the good of the world so it's okay it's a morally neutral act <laughs> that happened um yeah they they lit it on fire 35 million dollars in product they're not the only ones that do this so like i'm pretty sure h&m also probably has a practice like this and i'm probably wearing something from there so i am complicit too right this is my religion does anyone know what this might be this is an offering to the gods of a certain kind of religion. Can we just stop now? These, this religion has its own creeds too. Darling, let's get deeply into debt. Um, everyone's like laughing because you're a little uncomfortable because you know the ways that you and I are both caught up inside this ideology, inside this belief system. Uh, there has been this thought for the last, I don't know how long, 10, 20, 30 years, that the real threat to spirituality and to Christianity is non-belief, atheism, folks who have sort of no, uh, maybe would claim no uh, sense of like a higher power. It, it is a straw man kind of argument because if you meet folks who would claim atheism, there is a well, there is a lot to engage there and to learn and to listen to. It turns out like I'm also a bit of an atheist because when they tell me the kind of God they don't believe in, I'm like, yes, I don't, I don't believe in that God either. So we're, we're probably speaking more shared language than we know. The problem that the Bible is concerned about and the problem that we should think about is not atheism or lack of belief because we all believe something. It is, it's, it's idolatry. That is the concern, the prophets, the Torah of Jesus who inherits this tradition of Paul and the early church is not those who would not believe in anything because we all believe in something. Even if our, our God is the mall, right? That's where we worship. This is about kind of primary allegiance. It would, we would do well to hold this idea of idolatry out in front of us because it is likely the place where we will feel the most temptation and not even know it. That we are caught up in other belief systems. You don't need to be able to read this. It is intentionally small, so don't feel bad. But this is, uh, this is just a real quick text of the, the Decalogue or of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments uh, show up in the book of Exodus and the book of, book of Deuteronomy. Exodus 20, this is after the, the people are freed from Pharaoh and from Egypt. And so God gives them through Moses this sort of condensed set of, of instructions, commandments, ways to be in the world. And the, the way that it's structured says a lot. The, the amount of time given to each thing says a lot about what God is trying to teach these people. And, and idolatry is like right at the heart of things. So this is the section here, this yellow band up here, that begins to talk about commandments against idolatry. Have no other gods before me. Don't make a graven image. That's a lot of words. 
The question there is, can you trust me? That's what God is asking the people. Can you trust me? Because what God is asking them is to not trust Pharaoh, to not trust Egypt. So maybe the first set of things that they need to know to live by, to guide their actions and their ways of being in the world is, can you trust this God? And it's an open question, like it's still an open question. And this God is an unknown quantity to a lot of them. And this God is in fact terrifying because that God just laid waste to Egypt's war chest in the sea. So can you trust me? Now there's this other huge section in the Ten Commandments known as the Sabbath. And that's this question or this, this ask, can you prove it? If you trust me, can you stop? If you trust me, can you Release, can you rest? Because Egypt and Pharaoh have their own ideology. It is its own belief system and religion. And it is one of constant production and consumption, of accumulation of goods and of resources, of never stopping ever, uh, of exploited labor markets. Like that is Egypt. And so this call to Sabbath. Is about putting your, your money or your stuff or your energies where your heart, your allegiances are. That is a lot of a primary set of texts. The Ten Commandments, like, right? It's a very primary text for our own formation. And yet a ton of it is taken up with this question of idolatry and then sort of public action, this way that we can posture ourselves to sort of release ourselves from that idolatry. This is another, here's a new word that we're going to all learn together. Uh, Mitzrayim. You know what Mitzrayim means? Tell me. No, you, you tell me. You said yes, but then you thought you weren't sure if you knew. It means Egypt, right? It's the, it's the language for Egypt in the Hebrew scriptures. And I'm not just putting it up there so that you have to learn another word than Egypt. I met a guy today whose name is Moses and I said, oh, it also could be Moshe because that's the Hebrew word. And he looked at me like, why would I care about that information? My name is Moses. Uh, but it's a cool name. Uh, my name is Jacob Yaakov uh, Mizraim means Egypt but it also means a narrow place a place that constrains you and that's what happened in Egypt it's what happens and it's part of what they unlearn in the wilderness their imagination their operating space has just been constrained their bodies have been constrained the future has been constrained they live and exist in a narrow and suffocating place And so the story of the Exodus is the story of freedom from that narrow place into a wide and bountiful land. Now when Jesus speaks, especially in the book of Matthew, Jesus speaks with the voice of Moses. And so the call is in part a call out of Mizraim. It's out of another narrow place where their actions have been constrained, where their realities and futures have been constrained, and they maybe have forgotten that they could be free. So then the question for us becomes, where is the narrow place? Where have you felt constricted? Where do you feel trapped or maybe don't even even know that you are? I'm going to read for you the passage this morning. It's chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we talked about giving to those who are in need, prayer and fasting about how to practice our righteousness without making it about a show. This week, 19, let me read it for you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust 
or vermin consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume, where thieves don't break in and steal. By the way, the language there is uh, don't store up for yourself storages in the earth. It's this sort of play on words and joke behind the scenes. Don't treasure up for yourself treasures. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is super true. Right? That's the reason that I bought an alarm for my house. Because I really love the house. And part of my treasure is there. It's a problem. And every time I buy something new, it becomes a problem. Like I got a surfboard the other day. And immediately I dropped it. And cracked the edge, the rail. And so I have to like go in and patch it up. And man, my heart broke. Right? Because <laughs> there's some treasure there. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then this line, you can't serve two masters. This is the language of Mitzrayim, by the way. This is the language of Egypt. You cannot serve. You cannot serve Yahweh and Pharaoh at the same time. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and wealth, God and money, God and mammon. So let me ask the question and I'm going to press into it a little bit. And we're going to have some real conversations together today. Where is Mizraim? Where are we constrained and by what? What is the ideology, the idolatry that we live within that we might not even see? GDP. Gross domestic product. We know what this means, right? Most of us, this is the way that we measure prosperity. This is the way that we measure success. This is the way that we know if we are winning or if we are losing. GDP is a really good measurement of a certain kind of religion. And when our hopes, when our securities, when our lack of anxiety rest on that number going up or down, we can be sure that we are trapped in a system, that we are in a Mitzrayim, that we have been constrained. Now, inside of this system is this image, and we should know it well because we feel it. The numbers always have to go up and to the right. Now, if the only thing that matters is GDP, and actually right now it's been increasing for all. We had this conversation with the foundation board when we had our investment broker come in and talk to us about the way the stock market's performing, and it was a positive image. But all of us in the room who are also studying more than just the GDP asked the question, uh, on whose backs? Right, that becomes the other question. Is this good news for all, or is this something else? Here's the way that I am caught up in this religion. I'll just be honest for a second. Uh, every Monday we have folks who come in and count the offering and every Monday I hope that the numbers go up and to the right every Sunday I try my best not to see this room as a group of as a mass of people and whether that number goes up and to the right but let's be honest for a long time in church life we have had the metrics of Egypt guiding our future do the numbers go up and to the right what is our GDP and are we measuring the right stuff I'm just, I'm I'm being honest right now. This is a different conversation if we are being good stewards with what we have been given, right? That is what Dan reminds me of every time we sit in our office once a month and talk about our money. Are we being good stewards with these gifts that have been entrusted to us? And are we putting them to work to undo certain kinds of narrow places for people and to free ourselves and others? Or are we finding ourselves trapped? Money is not the problem. In fact, I'm going to ask you to turn over some, to let go of some at some point. Lots of times, right? 
But it's this reliance on, it's this sort of like, if everything is okay, if this thing is okay. Now, this is what it looks like to be inside of this. Production and consumption. It is a cycle. It is a ritual. It is a liturgy. Produce and consume. This is how you know that you are paying loyalty to the gods. Is that you're doing these things in the right order, at the right capacity, the right frequency. You get a good feeling on Black Friday when you shop enough to help support the GDP. Doing your job to make the religion work. But now what happens if you can't enter into this cycle? If you don't have enough health to produce? Or you don't have enough wealth to consume? Are you a bad disciple? But that's, that could be the question. Anybody feeling anything yet? I am. I've been feeling stuff all week. I'm really glad I don't have to talk about this next week. And we can forget that it's a problem. <laughs> there is a reason that the next thing Jesus talks about is anxiety. Part of what Jesus is doing is asking us to let go. It's like sort of, you know, you're holding on. And this language of you can't serve two masters is the call to let go, to walk through the sea when the waters part, to walk into the unknown that's called the wilderness. But it will feel like falling. It will feel like dying. Jesus knows that if that's the call, then the next thing has to be said is it's going to be okay. God sees and knows. This is terrifying. Don't be afraid. We need to talk about vision. There's this strange part on Thursday. We talked about this. You're invited on Thursdays at noon. We have a Bible study in that lobby space right behind the sanctuary. You can bring your own lunch. But we have a group of folks who show up and talk about the scripture for the coming Sunday. And this section on the eyes and vision was confusing for everybody, myself included. So we need to talk about it a little bit. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of... If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If it's unhealthy, your whole body is full of darkness and shadows. If in the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a conf- it's a confusing passage. The way that I understand the way that my eyes work, the way that your eyes work, is that they receive light. Right? They are a window inward. That is the way that we have come to understand our vision. But that is not the way that the ancients understood their eyes. The body sort of is full of meaning in the ancient context. We would do well to recover this, this knowledge base. And the eyes were windows, but they were windows so that someone could see what you were really like. Windows into your soul. So there's this idea of having a, an eye full of light or an evil eye, for instance. And if you've been around somebody who's got an evil eye, it's a very disturbing sort of thing. You're sitting there across from them, and you can feel, you can feel shadows. So Jesus is saying, be careful what you put out in the world. The image is not of light going in, it is of light going out. It's like a, it's like a cyclops Jesus, which makes me super excited. There's all of this language in the Bible about the way that we see the world. And to see the world as God sees the world, or as Jesus sees the world. One passage 
says, if your eyes are full of shadows, when you look upon the poor, you will look into spies and you will close your fists and you will pull back. And if your eye is full of light, then when you see those in need, you will release and you will care for. Jesus is making a very clear call to give, to partner with, and to see in those who are vulnerable in need a friend. Let me read for you one passage. It's from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15. This is about the sabbatical year. I'm starting in verse 7 if you want to know. If there's any among you in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. That's the thing. That's like the whole thing. This is what Jesus is pressing into. Now, I know both of my neighbors in our neighborhood. I know their names. I know a little bit about them. Um, That is not the full scope of my neighbor. You all are my neighbor too. And for a while in Israel's history, that language of neighborliness in the community of Israel was constrained to just your people, to just your tribe. So when Jesus comes along, and then especially when Paul comes along helping us understand Jesus, it is this expansion of neighborliness. So we are not off the hook if we see someone in need and think they don't belong to me. Because what Jesus says is that we all belong to each other. And Paul says, like, there is not, the dividing lines do not hold. Those lines are are Mitzrayim, like, Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, like, that is a narrow space, and you are still constrained. So, when the author of the book of Deuteronomy says, there's anyone in your community who is in need, and the towns in your land do not be hard-hearted or or tight-fisted, Our community is more than we know. And there is plenty of need. I'm going to show you a picture. uh, And I want to to preface it. Because I I can't remember if I've shown you this one before. But anytime I do, I know that uh, it can upset a few people. Um... And the reason is because we have attachments to images and they mean a lot to us. And so I'm not trying to take away a bit of your own meaning in the way that you access God, but I do want to name a couple of things. Uh, so I have a set of business cards that I keep in my office because uh, people still like business cards, and so I have them. Um, and, and I have three different ones. You can see them here. This is a good object lesson, right? Everybody knows what they're seeing? No. I'm going to put them up on the screen for you. Um, I have three of them. One says more joy. One says God is for you. I give these two to most people because those are not terribly scary. Uh, but every once in a while, I, someone asks for a card and I think, I'm going to figure out 
if you and I are the same kind of people. And I give him the one on the right. See, you're all upset now. Because it's Jesus with a clown nose. And it says on the bottom, beware the social system that cannot laugh at itself. This is a quote from a, one of my favorite books by, by Lewis Hyde. Uh, Trickster makes the world. Let, this is not a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of Salman's depiction of Jesus. And it's fine, but I know this is not Jesus. And the reason I know this is not Jesus is because there is a lot of product in that hair. And it's expensive product. And like his clothes are, are probably ironed. And that stuff, this is a well-kept Jesus. And, and Jesus was poor. Like that's just a fact. When Jesus' parents go to the temple when he's a kid to offer a sacrifice, they offer the sacrifice of the poor class. They don't have enough to even sort of make it into middle class life. They have to bring the poor people's offering to the temple. Jesus comes from a family of carpenters or of tradesmen, which is like one rung under the peasants who at least owned a track of land that they could, they could work. Jesus is from the backwaters. What good comes out of that place? Jesus is poor. One of the letters to the early church, the writer says that Christ, even though being like quite rich, became, became poor. Part of that is an expansion of the community, is an expansion of the imagination. 2,000 times the Bible talks about capital, talks about money, talks about economics, talks about the poor and the ways that we relate. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is saying a set of woes to the religious leaders and says, woe to you who tithe some herbs and some spices like that is going to matter to those who are in need. And you ignore the weightier matters of the law of righteousness and of mercy. Jesus is poor. But what does that mean? Whether I like to admit it or not, there is a, t- a lot of the time where I'm committed to a Jesus who always wins. To a Jesus who is quite successful. And the reason that I am committed to that is because I really want to win and be successful. And some of you do too. And what happens for me is when that becomes my driving force in life, uh, it is partly so that you all see and think, man, that guy is killing it. But also... It helps me understand where everyone else stands in relation to me. So when you see somebody who is without, who is in need, who is vulnerable, who is stuck, you can sort of take a step back and say like, good thing I'm doing okay and 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 mine are doing okay. Here is the the danger. Here is what Jesus is trying to free us from. A, A narrow vision of who belongs But this is set with me. Poor people look sinful when your God is money. There is a shame attached to those who are struggling on the edges. Go have a conversation and you'll hear it. You'll feel it. It's a shame that is attached to the failure to be a good disciple to the religion that is ruling. 
And I've done this. Look and ask the question, what did they do or not do? How did they fail that they are in this space? Jesus just continually goes into these spaces, becomes these spaces, and expands the circle. I don't know what to do about this, but just to confess it. And so I'll confess it to you. And if this is you, you can confess it to God. I'm afraid sometimes that I'm tithing mint and human and dill and ignoring justice and mercy. I'm just, I'm always concerned that I am more committed to up and to the right than I am to Jesus who is out there with the people. I'm just, this is my fear all the time. Sometimes I'll have conversations with folks and they'll ask like, what, what are we at? What are we doing here at this congregation? Like what, what's the, what's the plan? And, uh, over time, we can formulate this more precisely, but we're trying to find and follow Jesus, right? That's what we're doing. We're trying to find and follow Jesus. And what, what I'm trying to do is find the real Jesus, the one who disturbs and upends, the one who challenges and saves, the real, powerful, gritty Jesus. I know that if that is the project, and I am going to be undone in the process. I know for you all and for me that this is difficult because Jesus is difficult. If it was easy, he wouldn't have said, like, this is a kind of narrow door and it's hard to get through. It's not because he's making it hard. It's because we are devoted disciples to other gods. And most of the time, not aware. So, one last thing. Every time growing up when I would go on a mission trip as a kid, they would send us out somewhere. Where did we go? We always went to the poor places. And the assumption was, those are the folks that need Jesus. Because they're failing at whatever the game is. A couple years ago, I saw somebody pose the question... The reason, well, sort of a question of conviction. Uh, the reason that we send mission trips to places of poverty is because we assume that that's the place where the most sin is present. Why don't we send youth to the suburbs where people are just as trapped inside of Mizraims and Egypt's? What if we did? What if we looked out and saw in ourselves and in our neighbors other folks who are trapped and don't even know that they're trapped because the, 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 they, it, feels, it feels good. Winning feels good. Success feels good. I'm trying to find Jesus. And I know you are too. I know it because... Because we keep sitting across tables and saying, did you see him? Have you seen him? Where? A little later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says, and we know this line, 
I showed up and you saw me. And then they ask, I did not see you. I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, well, you saw the one who was hungry or the one who was thirsty or the one who was without clothes or the one who needed and you responded and you found me. And then others, Jesus says, like, you have not seen me once. And they say, what are you talking about? We've been here the whole time. We were in the temple. We were singing the songs. We were putting money in the plate. And Jesus says, you have not. You You do not see me. When I say the phrase Mitzrayim, when I explain, draw the picture of a constraining in a narrow place, you and I feel it because we live it. And the anxiety that is produced living inside of Egypt, it is suffocating. Egypt is not a thing that happened It is not so long ago and it is not so far away. Here's what Jesus says, though. That heaven, which we name as that space where God is active in this world, is also not so long ago or so far ahead or far away. Jesus says it is, in fact, in your very midst. And then this line, for those who have ears to hear or eyes to see. So friends and family, when you leave this place or when you just turn yourself, please pay attention because you might find Jesus. But you have to have new eyes. May God free you and me both from the narrow places. May we see Jesus in the eyes of the one whose hands are open. And may we open our hands in response. Always, because we are looking for Jesus and we hope to find him. Would you pray with me, please? God, I confess here today with my brothers and sisters that I am afraid of looking like I need anything because it exposes me and it hurts really bad God to be that vulnerable and frail but you call us to the downward path to become smaller so that we might find you in unexpected places. I don't know why we don't expect it, God, because you told us you'd be there. You've always told us that you'd be there and that you care. So help us to care, to not be so anxious about what we might be able to retain and accumulate, but that we might be set free. Yes, God. Egypt is crushing. And yes, God, often we are trapped. But you promise deliverance and freedom. For those who are without and those have too much. We ask for your light today. That it would shine out from inside of us. And illuminate the world in Christ's name. Amen.